So good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons um, and to this beautiful autumn day. So it's uh, a really nice uh, change not to be sitting here in October wondering whether I should have put my thermals on this morning. Um, and welcome to the second lunchtime lecture in the series to complement our War, Art and Surgery exhibition. I'm very pleased to welcome Julia Midgley to speak today. Um, Julia's work is on display in the exhibition and I do encourage you to go and have a look at it in the museum after the talk. Um, she provides a contemporary examination of the art of war, and that's my interpretation of it rather than hers, alongside the historical pastels that were produced by uh, Henry Tonks. Julia is a printmaker and an artist who specialises in drawing. She has practised as a reportage stroke documentary artist for several decades and her works on paper are drawn on location recording the live action in a wide variety of places and organisations. She became interested in surgery during a 1999 artist residency at the Royal Liverpool University and Broad Green Hospital Trust. And it was during the project exhibition here at the Royal College of Surgeons, and I remember that, I've been here a long time, um, that Julia first encountered Tonks's drawn archive of Gilly's reconstructive surgery on injured soldiers. Today, Julia will look at examples of the work of official war artists from the First and Second World Wars, as well as reportage artists who are focused on medicine, military and civilian, from the 20th and 21st centuries. She will then focus her war on her war art and surgery drawings, describing the experience of working with recovering service personnel, as well as the drawing process. So please welcome Julia Midgley to speak on Between the Lines, Drawings of Military Medicine Past and Present. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. It's uh, lovely to be here. Um, yes, just briefly, um, Jane explained I'm a documentary reportage artist, and um, that involves uh, effectively being rather like a documentary film crew, only reportage artists work with a pencil and paper rather than with cameras. Uh, and that gives um, access to certain areas that a lot of places you wouldn't really be able to go to with a camera crew. And so um, this particular project, which I will talk about later on in the talk, will um, ha has really used that, that um, genre um, at, its, at its best, really, in that we can get into very specific areas. But um, documentary drawing has long been a a genre in the UK, uh, particularly in the form of sending official war artists to um, the field of combat over the centuries. And it's a, a genre which continues very much today. Um, I've got my notes over here, so if I keep turning this way, it's because I'm looking at my notes as we go. Um, so for the talk today, I think Jane's really explained. I'm going to go briefly over a, a little bit of a history of First World War and Second World War war artists, but um, looking really at those who concentrated on medical subject matter. Um, then I'll look at a few peacetime war artists and um, also surgeons who paint as well as treating patients. Uh, then I'll go on to the project itself, War Art and Surgery. Afterwards, hopefully, there'll be some time for questions, and um, please don't hesitate to ask me anything you'd like to know. So in the pantheon of um, British war artists, there are some very famous names, and I'm sure they'll be familiar to all of you, uh, in particular uh, John and Paul Nash. Uh, this is a very famous painting, uh, The Men in Road, uh, from World War I. And um, both brothers studied at the Slade in London, but they didn't necessarily concentrate on um, medical subject matter. It was more the onslaught of World War I, really, and the, uh, the general sort of destruction of the landscape and the people. 
Um, one, another of their fellow students at the Slade was Stanley Spencer, whose painting here, called Travel is Arriving at the Dressing Station, was made in uh, Macedonia, uh, where he'd been um, uh, sent as a member of the RAMC in 1915. Um, interestingly, Spencer regarded this piece of work as a religious piece of work, uh, more a scene of redemption than um, a direct journalism. William Orpen is a very big name, uh, grew to become one of the most famous artists of the First World War, uh, remarkably talented, um, hugely successful um, after the war as well as a society artist. But um, he too was a student at the Slade and um, became so successful um, during World War I that he was appointed an official war artist in 1917. He was knighted in 1918 and became a member of the Royal Academy of Art in 1919, so uh, of course post-war. Um, this is a particular uh, favorite of mine, this piece of work, and it's currently on show in the Imperial War Museum in their exhibition of First World War Art. Um, but during the war, Orpen organized and um, gave exhibitions of his work and the work of fellow war artists uh, back in the UK. And really, these drawings were the only first-hand account of life in the trenches and life at the front line during the First World War. Um, and interestingly, they don't... They, even those sometimes were censored. Not everybody's work uh, was shown. Um, some was considered too graphic, possibly demoralizing or depressing. But nevertheless, it was a source of um, first-hand information from the front line. We had the, the War Artists Commission sent a lot of artists out to the first, uh, out to the front, and um, on all fronts as well. However, back to Orpen. Um, he ended up teaching at the Slade, uh, and whilst he didn't specifically look at medical subject matter, he was always interested in anatomy, and he used his drawings of anatomy um, as teaching aids at the Slade when he was working there. Um, I've included this drawing for a couple of reasons. It's on black paper, so the drawing is made in white and brown chalk and blue chalk, and it's one of a set of about 16, I should know exactly how many, and I don't, I'm ashamed to say, but this body of drawings are on a large portfolio. They're what's called imperial paper size, which is not far off A1, uh, 22 by 30 inches, for those of you who still use imperial measurements, um, on black paper, and they were recently acquired by the Tate Gallery. Um, two or three of them were exhibited at Tate Liverpool, last year in a drawing exhibition, and they are stunning things, and they're all the same size, um, and must have made wonderful teaching aids, lucky students, what I can say. Um, Christopher Nevinson uh, was one of the most famous World War I artists. Um, however, apparently he was notoriously difficult to like, um, he had a fairly inflated, uh, well, it probably wasn't inflated, a justifiable high, justifiably high opinion of himself, but um, it said he was very difficult to love. He was a bit of a wide boy, they say. Um, he, when he was a student again at the Slade, was advised to abandon all hopes and thoughts of an artistic career after he left. Um, Actually, he, he was extremely famous and made a lot of money during the First World War. And there are some who feel that he might be the character that Pat Barker based her character Kit um, on in um, her books Life Room and uh, Toby's Room and Life Study. Oh, I've got it wrong now. But anyway, Toby's Room particularly. Um, so all these artists I've just mentioned, um, they were all students at the, stay, at the Slade, but they were all taught by Henry Tonks. 
Uh, and this is something I want to go back to Henry Tonks later on in the talk in more detail, a particular set of pastel portraits that, he's, uh, that he produced during World War I. But this painting is one that's more famous, and it's called Advanced Dressing Station France. Henry Tonks was a surgeon. He, he qualified um, as, well, became a member of the Royal College of Surgeons in 1888. But sh shortly afterwards, he started studying um, drawing and life drawing in, at Westminster, Westminster School of Art in the evenings uh, under Frederick Brown, who was so impressed that within a couple of years, um, Tonks was asked to be assistant to Frederick Brown at the Slade. And in fact, by 1892, Tonks had given up his surgical practice and became professor of fine art at the Slade. Um, he's hugely gifted, and he became a very, very um, highly sought-after portrait painter, social artist, academic painter. Um, this piece of work was actually commissioned by the British War Memorials Committee. And as you can see, um, Tonks is... is displaying here his knowledge of medicine. You can see that he's very interested in the dressings, the wounded, the treatment or the care of the wounded by medics on the spot. Um, it also, it was a painting that reflected heroism and sacrifice, and it was something that, uh, it was something that the government and the British War Memorials Committee were very keen to put that sort of message across so that whilst you know you have your heroic injured soldiers in the foreground there's nothing quite too distasteful in the painting to worry you it's um the brits looking after the brits and bringing them home um in world war ii artists continue to look at medicine and um, surgery of course um in east grinstead Archibald McKindo had set up a clinic to deal with burns, and he'd noticed that um, pilots who'd been brought down in the sea, um, he'd noticed that their wounds healed more quickly, and so um, they developed a system of giving saline baths to um, servicemen who'd suffered from burns injuries. And this painting by Alfred Thompson um, just demonstrates that process. I don't really know a lot about Alfred Thompson, but I think it's a wonderful painting. It, um, it's, uh, there's something very touching about it. Um, of course, during both wars, there were a lot of women artists, women war artists, but they tended, well, in fact, they were all pretty much um, working on the home front. A lot of them were depicting um, work in the land and the factories. But Eleanor Ellen Hudson produced this um, painting, which is almost like a drawing, really, um, of nurses making bandages from sheets. And again, this is this great sort of making do, isn't it? And, you know, not spending too much money and recycling, which is, of course, very apt today. Uh, and this piece of work was accepted by the War Artists Advisory Committee and is in the National Collection now. Um, another World War II artist who, who occasionally looked at medicine was Blair Hughes Stanton, who um, applied several times to be made an official war artist, but he was a communist and so was not elected to that position. Uh, but he did serve in the Middle East. Um, his father was a royal academician, and, um, you know, there's obviously a family trait of, of good draftsmanship here. Um, and I think this is um, very interesting. It's almost sort of, it's almost surreal, this image, and um, it's quite a difficult one to quite understand what's happening, but it's called emergency operation. So, moving on to post-war, Barbara Hepworth's household name, of course, you'll all be very familiar with her, and in fact, this building, there are examples of her work um, in the collection. But from what perhaps a lot of people don't know or perhaps aren't aware of is that Hepworth had uh, triplets, she had three daughters, one of whom suffered um, from 1944 with osteo, 
myelitis. And um, during the early days of her treatment, the family uh, met a surgeon who was working at Exeter at the time called Norman Capener. And Norman Capener um, was very interested in modern art and, like a lot of surgeons, was a painter. Um, so he persuaded Barbara Hepworth to do a portfolio of drawings of the work of the hospital. And she said, um, I don't want to do anything about operations. I'm not very good with blood, but anything that involves healing and hands, then uh, yes. And the end result was a remarkable series of drawings. There is an excellent book that contains, as it were, a catalogue of all these drawings. And I'm just trying to remember the title of it. It'll come back to me later, if, I hope, uh, if anybody's interested. But um, I think it's interesting that this sort of surgeon-artist thing keeps cropping up, and, and you will notice it more and more so as I continue. Uh, and this is a good example. Oh, hang on, I missed a slide out. Oh, that's interesting. Anyway, seems to be a missing slide of Linda Kitson, who's from the Falklands. But, oh, no, it's the next one. Jumping ahead, sorry. Um, Diana Orpen was known as Dickie Orpen. Uh, she's the daughter of William Orpen, of whom we spoke earlier. Um, William Orpen had several children, and he dictated to all of them that none of them were to be artists, that one successful artist in the family was quite enough. But on seeing her drawings from a holiday she'd had, and she brought back a sketchbook, which he saw, he took her to meet Henry Tonks, who was in his final year of teaching at Slade. And Tonks said well, let her join the class. So at 14, Diana Orpen went to the Slade and studied under Tonks for a year and then presumably carried on studying after his retirement. But she um, was very interested in maxillofacial um, injuries and, and treatment. And so after the war, well, during the Second World War, she worked at St Albans Maxillofacial Unit uh, and hospital, and continued to make medical illustrations of facial surgery well into the 1970s. And in fact, there was an exhibition, I think it was here, organized by Brian Morgan of Bapras, um, some years ago, I think about 10 years ago. Interestingly, when she was working with Tonks as a very young child, she wrote down that Tonks had told her the only drawings he was unashamed of in his entire output were those that he made of Harold Gillies' work, which we will come to later. Um, but it's a great quote there. Um, Linda Kitson, this is the slide I thought I'd lost. Linda Kitson was um, official war artist and was sent by the Imperial War Museum to uh, the Falklands War and she didn't really concentrate on things medical, but this double-page spread from her sketchbook shows a field ambulance um, uh, of the Royal, medical, uh, the Royal Army Medical Corps. Um, there are lots of other contemporary war artists. Uh, not many of them concentrate on medicine, but um, of those English artists who've been out to different conflicts since the Falklands, there is Peter Howson, who's very well known, uh, Francis and Jason Bowyer have both been out to Camp Bastion. John Keane went to Iraq, and um, Arabella Dorman has been to Afghanistan. So it is, you know, it continues to be very much a tradition in in, um, in the English visual arts to send artists out there. But in the peaceful time, as it were. Um, and in more recent years, there have been other portfolios of drawings produced on the subject of medicine. And Susan McFarlane produced two portfolios. Uh, one, and this is an example of one of them, it was called A Picture of Health, and it's about women and breast cancer. And she produced a large portfolio of very large paintings and drawings. It's difficult to, this is one of these things, sometimes things are called paintings, sometimes called drawings, they're on paper and there's a linear quality to them and there's a pastel quality, but there's also paint, so they could be either. But these beautiful pictures um, were quite large and they were in London in the late 90s. Uh, and the whole 
project was initiated by another surgeon, Jeffrey Farrah Brown, who had met McFarlane and seen her work, um, her sort of personal work, and encouraged her to work within medicine. So she made this portfolio and a second one called Living with Leukemia, about childhood leukemia and the effect on families. So Roy Kahn must be a very familiar name to most people interested in transplant surgery. Um, interestingly, he, he's now pretty much retired from practicing, but he refers to himself on his CV as an artist. Um, he transplanted, well, actually, he um, made the first liver, he performed the first liver transplant in Europe, I think, if I'm right, in 1987. But he also later transplanted the liver of Royal Academician John Bellany, who you may or may not have heard of, who, um, you know, was a, was a high liver who enjoyed his life to, full, to its fullest extent, and Kahn transplanted John Bellany's liver. During the recovery, Bellany gave lessons to his surgeon and then went on to make a, por uh, a portrait of Sir Roy Khan, and that portrait hangs in the National, Gallery, uh, National Portrait Gallery. But Roy Khan uses his drawings not only to record his patients and to draw portraits of his patients and his work, he uses his diagrams. So the drawing on the left here is a diagram drawn by him and used as a slide in his lectures to his students and to other practicing medical personnel. Um, the drawing on the right is one of my drawings of Roy giving a lecture using his drawings at the Liverpool Medical Institutions. There's a nice sort of circular route there. But um, he's a really passionate artist and now is a, he sculpts now as well and works in um, bronze. So um, now we're sort of approaching time when I need to talk about my own project and um, military medicine today. There's a little bit of history to that too in that Sir Charles Bell in 1815, who, another surgeon, but he was an artist too, and he made drawings of his patients and illustrated his own texts. Um, and this drawing was made of a German prisoner in, um, at Waterloo. Much more recently... Um, in fact, on the first day when I was on location um, at a military medical training camp, I was asked if I had ever heard of Gora Patak, who is a working military surgeon uh, who makes these paintings of his work. And the, he was in these drawings, these two drawings were made in Iraq between 2003-2011. But perhaps the most famous surgeon... Going back now to my subject matter, I diverted briefly there, but the most famous surgery during World War I was that made at Queen's Hospital Sidcup by Gillies, by Harold Gillies. He was a pioneering facial reconstructive, his pioneering facial reconstructive techniques um, repaired the faces of countless soldiers whose faces had been blown to bits, really, in the trenches. But Gillies was a New Zealander. He was a multi-talented individual. He played golf. And there's a very good poem I'm going to read you here. It says, For Cambridge, 1904, he rode, appearing from an antipode. At golf, he's plus I don't know what, and won the St. George's challenge pot. When the soft turf, his niblick hues, deftly the divot he replaces, and the same plastic art renews the natural form of wounded faces. Um, he... Um, was quite a martinet, apparently, but at the same time encouraged skits in the ward and performances in the evenings. And whilst he banned alcohol in the daytime, he would um, bring champagne in in the evenings when he often dressed up as a woman, apparently. But <laughs> came in in costume, anyway. <laughs> anyway, um, this is a painting of um, the hospital in Sidcup where, interestingly and unusually, two operations were taking place at once. This is by Jay Hodge. Hodgson Lobley. Another New Zealander, Daryl Lindsay, was working um, at Sidcup. You see, Gillies 
recognised the importance of recording his work, so he would use photographers and artists. Um, but the most important artist that was to record Gilly's work was, of course, Henry Tonks, whose pastel portraits, his half-sized pastel portraits, are just a remarkable example of technique and skill and humanity. Um, and they were really not very much known about until recent years. Um, at the start of World War I, Tonks was only 50, was, was 52, but he was appointed to the R Royal Army Medical Corps in 1916 and then sent to work and record the work of Gillies at Sidcup. Um, given that he was a surgeon anyway, he was uniquely qualified for this role, and um, his drawings were produced as reference for Gillies, as a record for Gillies, but also as teaching material for student doctors in future years. But what, interestingly, they weren't regarded as works of art. It's not until really recently that that shift in opinion has taken place. They're, they're really very human portraits, and when you look at them, and they're all, all upstairs, and this is so unusual to have all 72 of these portraits under one roof in one exhibition. And when you look at them, you sort of know that you'll recognise that patient if you see him. They're basically uh, before and after surgery. Um, the patients never saw these drawings. They were um, obviously... Tonks was a senior um, ranking, so they were never asked to see them. No mirrors were allowed. But what they did draw from Tonks was the fact that he scrutinised them directly. He looked at them face to face. He was sitting there, right in their space, drawing them. And um, this, oddly enough, is a, reassur a reassuring thing for them at the time because most people on seeing these facial injuries would recoil or turn their eyes away whereas Tonks wouldn't, he'd stare them in the face and look at them and draw them. These drawings really stayed in a medical setting in the interwar years, and they were rarely seen as Tonks's main body of work, either very rarely referred to. But now they are accessible to the general public, to medics, students, and they've attracted the attention of filmmakers, art historians and writers. We mentioned Pat Barker, and she wrote about Sidcup oops, and the Queen's Hospital. And really, I think, again, if you do have time to go upstairs and look at them afterwards, you'll see how these drawings show remarkable handling of pastel, which is a notoriously unstable medium to control. Uh, and they were drawn face to face. So around this time, well, around the time that the Tonks's drawings came to this building, the Royal College of Surgeons, um, I was, um, had just finished a two-year spell as artist-in-residence at the Royal Liverpool and Broadgreen Hospital. Uh, and the idea of that was to record medicine uh, at the end of the 20th century. So when I the, sh the exhibition from resulting from that project came here, and that's when I first saw the Tonks drawings. Um, by about 2011, my thoughts were turning again to wanting to work with surgery and to do another project. And I thought it would be nice with the centenary of World War I uh, fast approaching to reflect and pay tribute to Henry Tonks's work and look at military surgery uh, today. So... Initially, I thought it would be good to concentrate on the same sort of subject matter as Tonks, but of course, in Afghanistan, injuries are very different. Uh, they're mainly um, lower limb, upper limb, uh, and torso. Uh, so the project shifted, and we look, decided to concentrate on how military surgeons and all military personnel in the medical services are trained before their deployment to Afghanistan, or in fact, any combat zone. This is the first drawing of 155 that were produced. They're all about A3. They're all on different sorts of paper. Um, but you might notice in my scribble up on the left-hand side that I've written military artist, wing commander, Gora Patak, orthopedic consultant, because the first day someone said, do you know his work? And, of course, I didn't at the time. Um, 
This is a reconstruction of Camp Bastin Hospital, which is in Yorkshire. It's at uh, Strensel Camp, and I spent quite a lot of time there making drawings of um, medical training. And it's vast, and it, at that point, exactly replicated the layout of Camp Bastion Hospital. And it replicated, or attempted, and I'm sure it did, replicate every scenario that any serving medic might confront. Um, they have a cosmetic department there, so I should warn you that these slides are, are all prosthetic injuries. They're all cosmetic prosthetic injuries. This is a soldier being made up to appear to have been se uh, severely burned. They have a cosmetics team called Trauma Effects there, and um, the girls who run it were trained at art school. <laughs> this, again, is a prosthetic injury designed to prepare medics, and the patients, in inverted commas, some of them are civilians who are already amputees, some of them are uh, serving soldiers. This is not a real injury. This is uh, a prosthetic injury. Uh, and this particular, they call them actors, this particular actor uh, is a double amputee, and um, there are a lot more gory shots of how they've made up his stumps to look as if he's lost his legs. But I'll spare you those, but they are very convincing. Uh, and they go to the, the amount of detail that little pulses, little balloons of artificial blood are put into the wounds, and they pulse... Um, and it is extraordinary. It was a complete eye-opener. I had no idea the lengths that our military forces went to to prepare um, medical practitioners. This is one of my drawings um, of a soldier who has a prosthetic wound applied to his face. Um, this is another one. Again, this, this patient is, is it's prosthetic injury, and he already has a stump on that leg. So he this is not a real leg that's been blown apart, but it is what doctors are likely to face. So having spent quite a lot of time at Strensel Camp in Yorkshire, um, I was then sent to uh, Headley Court in Surrey, very famous institution, very beautiful house, where um, servicemen and women go for rehabilitation following their surgery, which has generally taken place. Once they've been recovered from Afghanistan, they tend to come into Birmingham, and after their surgery, generally come to Headley Court. Um, there's my pass, Julia Godfrey, that's my surname, artist, unescorted. So um, it's quite difficult to get one of those passes, so that's why I photographed it. The garden's beautiful, really stunning place to um, be if you're trying to get better. And they have a lot of gravel paths up and down dale, round the corners, a lot of bridges. And these are taken full advantage of for the recovery of soldiers when they're trying to learn to walk again. And here you see um, Lieutenant... Oh, Christy, what's your surname? Palatis Fluntal with my notes. This patient, I followed him undergoing something called a boot camp. And he was walking on these new legs. You see, if you look carefully, the artificial legs are different. Um, they're not the same. His stumps are of different lengths. So to walk again on gravel, on an undulating path going up and downhill, is very difficult when you're at this stage of your recovery. He's called Captain Luke Sinnott. And... Um, he was very good in, in allowing me to follow him because it must have been a, difficult enough just to learn to stand up, never mind have an artist following you. This is him after his boot camp um, trying to get his breath back and sitting just waiting whilst notes are made and they do a sort of post-mortem discussion on how he's getting on. Um, this drawing is made on graph paper and I haven't really said enough about how important paper is to me, other than we mentioned paper, the black paper that Orpen uses. Um, before I make a mark on any sheet of paper, it's a question of what paper is appropriate for this subject matter. The graph paper I used 
because there was a lot of note-taking, a lot of statistic-taking, there was a lot of um, medical forms and graphs, and, and it seemed to me appropriate at the time. Uh, and I've used it again here in this portrait of Andy Reid. Um, all these patients have different stories. Uh, Andy was coming towards the end of his treatment when I made this drawing of him in uh, 2012. He lost two legs and an arm, and his uh, remaining arm, his left arm, was injured, and he uh, had skin grafts on his hand. His throat um, had been damaged in some way, so his speech was impaired. But he's now, and since then, um, rebuilt his life as a motivational speaker. Uh, he's written a book as well. And to talk about what he'd done, he came to London and came here to the Royal College of Surgeons for a film crew to interview him about um, a film they're making about war art. And he sat, he came all the way down from Wigan, I think, and sat, and this is him earlier this year. So, you, you know, he's sort of looking more mature, more relaxed. Uh, and um, he's an absolutely extraordinary guy. He's married, has a child, and um, one of he said something very interesting because he was asked in this interview what was it like when you're undergoing treatment to be drawn by Julia. And he said, well... Oh, and they asked him what he thought about the drawing. Not this drawing, but that one. And he said, well, Julia's drawing is a bit incomplete. But then, without my legs, I'm a bit incomplete too. So, you know, it's sort of very good... And um, he's um, you know, a really remarkable person. This is a very common sight at Headley Court. These are microprocessor legs. They're called sea legs. And these are the sort of legs that patients aspire to. Um, and I think they're very costly things, but they do enable um, a, a huge amount of independence. And... Um, I just thought this was a fairly poignant image at the end of the day, just to see the, these things charging up overnight. Um, this patient, Ricky, um, he, he was very keen for me to, to draw him. He, um, I think, got two military crosses. He uh, rescued his uh, friend from um, an explosion in Afghanistan and lost his legs, uh, his, lost an eye, and um, his arm is affected too. But all he did uh, when I was there was kept texting me, saying, where are you? I'm in the gym. Come and draw me. <laughs> and don't make my shorts look a mess, will you? So as you see, I sort of did, but um, he was a real character and um, has now been fully discharged. Uh, Justin Davis um, allowed me into a really... Uh, poignant moment for him because this was the first day that he'd been able to do anything approaching walking again. Having lost both his legs very high up, he was wearing what are called stubbies, which are very short legs, as you can see, and they're cut flat um, across the bottom. Uh, the purpose being that you begin to learn how to balance, but if you overbalance, it's not so far to fall. He's gone on to um, build a new life and is um, working as a joiner and a carpenter in the New Forest now and apparently, you know, has graduated to full-size legs and is not looking back. And in this drawing of the uh, rehabilitation pool at Headley Court, in the background, they've just been having a sort of a bit like a boot camp but in the water where they have team and relay races. Um, the girl who's just come out of the pool at the back, you see with a stick, I've drawn her twice there. Um, you can see again in this drawing made a year later. Um, and she elected to have her injured leg amputated. Um, it was, she said, the best thing she'd ever done. Her leg had been painful, it was dragging along, it was no use, it was like a dead weight. And it's this sort of story that... Um, I'm hoping these drawings will um, convey to a wider public, really, this sort of incredible spirit. Um, Andy Crossland, uh, again, reflects this same thing. He, he had this appalling head injury and, and 
you know, he was happy to let me draw him like this, and that takes some doing, really. Um, and he, whilst we were having this sitting, we had a completely rational conversation. Uh, this is Andy 12 months later. Both these drawings are upstairs, so, um, you know, you can see them upstairs. Um, he had a replacement cranium, and he too uh, has now been fully discharged and is working as an electronics engineer for BT, I think. John Dawson, um, he uh, had a, a bullet wound that went through from his chin behind his eye, taking his eye out and coming out here. Um, and again, you know, he just said, it's fine, come and draw me, that's fine. And uh, so I just sat across the table, you know, really close. So my drawing process is one where you just sit in front of someone and talk and you just have a small pad and a pencil. But the important thing about these drawings that I haven't mentioned is that the piece of paper that I start to make the first mark on and the first drawing on location is the same piece of paper that ends up in the frame. I don't then start again in the studio. I do the drawing, I start it on location, and I finish it in the studio, but I don't start again. I need to keep that authenticity. I need to have that same piece of paper that I know was there. This is John, 12 months later. This drawing was made uh, earlier this year in April. He too's had a replacement cranium, and um, he, he has the, the, the eye on the left-hand side is a glass eye, but it was when I met him initially. And um, he's very keen that these drawings should help um, raise awareness of what recovering soldiers and servicemen and women go through and the efforts they put in to recover. Um, then I spent time here at the Military Operational Surgical Training Scheme. This training is done they, uh, upstairs on the top floor of this building and um, rotation teams of medics enact rotations of how receiving um, an injured person at Camp Bastion or on the field would take place. So you can see I've, I've made notations on the drawings. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? It's all taken very, very seriously. In this case, there's a mannequin on the table. And the same is true here, but it's a different team. And they're assessed, their performance is assessed by another team of people in an adjacent room who can make the mannequins respond using Wi-Fi. So the, the mannequins you have, a, have a, a pulse. It's really spooky. You know, you can touch these things and you go <laughs> like this. And um, their eye, eyes can change, their breath can then moan. Uh, it's all very lifelike. And so this all takes place here in London. And they make up the mannequins as well with prosthetic... Uh, injuries, and it's the same cosmetic team who produced those injuries, um, those cosmetic injuries, who worked in Yorkshire. They come to London. And so, you know, they all do these ghastly things on the mannequins, and then we make, go off and have a cup of tea together, as if, you know. <laughs> um, and so that was um, here in um, the Royal College of Surgeons. And then the fourth venue where I made drawings was at Bryce Norton, where, of course, um, they have to train medics to learn to treat on-board aircraft because the point of injury is often out somewhere remote in the desert. A helicopter goes and picks them up and how to be treated on the helicopter. Then they're treated again at Camp Bastion Hospital. And then to come home to the UK, they're put on a Hercules uh, where more teams of medics uh, treat and look after them. Uh, this is inside a Hercules aircraft. Um, this is a real aircraft, and we went on board, but it was um, an exercise, so it didn't take off, but it set, it, its engine started, and there was a lot of rattling and kerfuffle. But what's so interesting is the amount of equipment they have to take on board, all the batteries, because they don't have mains electricity, and it's quite a long flight, so all of that sort of thing they have to deal with. In this particular training course, they're actually only training two um, A&E nurses, who are already sisters anyway, but, uh, you know nursing sisters rather than family members. Uh, and this is, um, for those of you who are good on aircraft, this is a Merlin helicopter. And um, 
this one actually did take off. Uh, we'd been waiting. They'd been trying to get me up in the air, and, so, and I'd been desperate to get up in the air with one of these exercises for about four months and kept going back to Bryce Norton. It was either foggy or it was icy or it was snowing or it was raining or there weren't any planes. Finally, in, in April, uh, it was almost snowing. You can see it's rather like, hey, well, you know, what's it called when it rains and snows at the same time? Anyway, so thank you. It, that's what it was doing. But we got on board. So there I am strapped in, you see, with my pencil and my pad. And you can see roughly the size of paper from that that I draw on, that they're effectively A3, that's about sort of 28 by 38 centimeters sheets, all different types of sheets, different types of paper, handmade to graph paper to cheap re recycled. And this drawing was made in the helicopter mid-flight, and for some reason, uh, which they hadn't told me about, there was no reason for them to tell me about it, um, my seat was at the end. The, the seats go down the sides of the helicopter, and mine was the last seat before the ramp. And the ramp drops down, and that's how we all got in. Uh, during the flight, they opened the ramp. Uh, and, of course, my paper, which is not a pad, it's loose sheets of paper, was flapping wildly like this. So this drawing, you can see there's a sort of blank area on the left-hand side. That's where my hand was, holding the paper in place whilst I made the drawing. Uh, and this is another drawing made from the same flight. We were flying over Oxfordshire, and they were going up and down and wheeling and simulating flight under attack. And um, they had a, a, a patient, again, uh, not a, a genuinely ill patient in this case, who they were looking after and treating at the same time. So that was, you know, really interesting and very exciting. But again, the lengths that, that are taken to train people is remarkable. As you can see at the end of the exercise, the um, commanding officer is scratching his bottom in the background there. I'd asked one of the soldiers to take a photograph of me at work, and um, it's just classic that, isn't it? It would get somebody scratching his bottom. <laughs> um, really, I mean, that's, that's pretty much about it, but I wanted to say that these drawings, the whole portfolio of 155 drawings, uh, of this project, which are paying tribute to Henry Tonks, were all made here in the UK, so I haven't been outside the UK. They were all drawn in the field, literally sometimes, but they're also drawing life in the workplaces of other people, and they couldn't have been made if I hadn't been allowed in. So medical services, um, we owe a great deal to for allowing me into their workspace, and also to the patients who allowed me into their places of recovery particularly when they weren't really feeling too good. So that, that's really the last of my slides, but a large selection of the drawings are on show upstairs. All the Henry Tonkses are upstairs. Um, there's a book, and all 155 drawings are in a slideshow which is being projected above the stairs as you go upstairs towards the second floor here. Um, so uh, I hope you go and see it. And so if anyone's got any questions now, I've overrun a bit, I'm afraid, by 10 minutes, I think. But um, that's it. That's all I've got to say. But it's your turn now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. So is anybody, would anyone like to ask me anything? I mean, there's so much about this project that I haven't told you because there just isn't time. But is anyone... Yes? I just wanted to know, for example, where the book you finished there with the um, drawing of the aircraft, you had your pad. How far did you put in the way of pencils and pens? Well, I wonder if, it can, if you can see... Oh, sorry. Let's just see. Well, you can just see, actually, on that photograph. Um, it's... I take it sort of like a backpack. It's a fishing stool. And that has um, drawing sort of pencils, pens, inks, and the folder itself usually has about 20 sheets of paper, different sizes, different qualities. Yeah. So um, it's a bit rattly, but it's as compact as I can make it. But I have a car that I take with me to all these places that's not too far away generally, and they, they allow it onto the base. And that's like a separate studio. It's got everything else in it, you know. Um, in fact, someone saw me putting stuff into it and said, that could only ever be an artist's car. <laughs> it looks bad. But yes, yes. I did ask um, Scott Bishop about the first drawing.
Oh, Tonks or, or Gillies. Might have been Gillies, I think. Yes, yes. I think there was an article about that play, which, uh, which I'd love to see. Is it still on? Oh, what a shame. Yes, I read an article, but it sounded wonderful. Mm. My question, would there have been the same number of passes on the other side in the First World War? Yes, I... You don't hear much about it. You don't hear much. There were artists, definitely. Um, and in fact, if you go to the Somme, there's a very good um, museum in Peron, and there they do have um, drawings by European artists who were recording the war as well. I, I don't think there were as many, but they definitely did have artists there. Quite often they were serving soldiers who drew as well. But yeah, there's someone else put their hand up. Yeah. Yeah. For medical students, well, I, I don't really know because I'm not a medic. I'm not a medical student, but I think there are certain occasions when a drawing can perhaps extract from a patient. You know, if you if you can get close to a patient um, and sit and talk with them whilst the drawing is made, something more may come out of that portrait or that drawing than might have come out from a photograph, for example. It's different. It's not better than photography. They perform very different things. I think a drawing can encapsulate moments and hours, whereas a, photo a photograph is a fraction of a second, but it can, you know, encompass a lot of detailed information. So they do perform very different roles. They say, and Roy Kahn says, he believes his patients derived... Um, a lot of, as it were, therapeutic um, qualities from him sitting there and drawing them, but they knew that he was his surgeon as well, so um, that's a sort of double whammy, really. Um, I think you'd probably have to ask a surgeon what they thought on it. Mm. Can I just add something in response to that, that um, the Royal College of Surgeons does run a drawing for surgeons course two or three times a year in this building, and I don't know whether it's something they also offer regionally, um, because I think that relationship, like Tonks, between mm. the skill of the anatomical knowledge and then the ability to put that down on paper is something that seems to continue with surgeons even today, and it's one of the courses that fills up as most quickly, it's always full. Oh, Very hard to get places on. Mm. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. <laughs> Want to come along? Yes. yes. <laughs> come and do it. Yes. Yeah, yes. Anybody else want to put their hand up? Yes. Oh, loads of it. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. I don't think Tonks would have done, no. I mean, I think he, was, he is said to have been very autocratic anyway, but I, I don't think so. They regarded what he was doing as a... As a as a record, and the soldiers were probably terrified of him anyway, you know. Um, and they, they were thinking about their wounds. I don't think they were really considering that sort of thing so much. We did, yes, yes. It's, it's quite a tortuous procedure, really, but it's very necessary, you know. Is there a blue pencil person or artist as well? A blue pencil person? Well, there probably was. I think there was a degree of um, what's it called uh, censorship in the First World War when the when the exhibitions were held in London. I think there were. Yeah, I think so. Not now, I don't think. I think anything you can show anything. Peter Housen's drawings of Bosnia were very, very graphic. I don't think anyone was censoring that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Oh, um, I don't know if it... I think you absorb it all because 
given access to people who've got an injury that's so life-changing is very humbling anyway, really. And um, the process of doing the drawing and talking to them and learning about their experience is very affecting. Um, quite how it affects my work, I'm not sure. I mean, one hopes that it feeds through the work, but I, you're not. sometimes you sort of work in automatic, almost, because you're working within a short time scale and at the behest of those people who have scheduled, you know, if they're undergoing treatment. So you do have to concentrate. At the same time, the stories and the conversations. I think what happens is it's the application of the paint. If it's a very calming atmosphere, then actually the drawings don't look very confrontational. I think, you know, the choice of watercolour and pencil are a relatively soft medium. And interestingly, I was talking at a conference in Portugal showing a few of the drawings, and someone in the audience said, well, these drawings aren't very confrontational. They don't have explosions, and they don't have anger in them. Uh, he said, I think they're rather sweet, which is a bit of a condemnation, really. And I couldn't think what to say in response until about a month later, <laughs> which is almost what I'm saying to you now, is that my drawings are not the moment of impact. They're not the moment of injury. They're about two very separate things, the, the training of the surgeons who will then go on to treat, and then the recovery. And the recovery period is a very private, personal, quiet struggle, I think. Um, so uh, I, I'm hoping the drawings reflect that. So I, that's about as close as I can get to answering your question, really. Yeah, no. Oh, good, 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 that's good. Hi. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a mixture of all of those, really. Um, as for what's coming up next, I don't have anything very specific because this thing is sort of rolling on for a little while longer, a lot of talks and conferences and further exhibitions continuing. Uh, oddly enough, I want to do some more um, printmaking, but I might use some of these drawings and take them further into a different medium. Uh, how the projects come into being is very often... Um, it's a, something I might want to really do, and then I'll approach someone and say, do you think we might be able to do this? Uh, the Royal Liverpool project came up because I knew a surgeon who was a transplant surgeon who bought one of my etchings, and he, I said I'd deliver it to him in Liverpool because I was at the art school teaching there. He gave me a tour of the renal transplant unit, and we said, why don't we draw this? So that was um, just how things tend to happen. This project, I knew I'd like to work with surgery and do something about tonks. And I talked to a friend who was a retired dental surgeon on the beach in North Wales. And he said, oh, well, you need to go and talk to so-and-so. And then so-and-so said, you need to go and talk to. And eventually, you know, things develop. Sometimes people come directly to me and say, um, we're doing this, would you like to come and record it? And it might just be a very short project or it might be one that goes on for years, you know. You never know. There is no simple um, route, really. Just like life in general. I think almost any, if you're a writer or a musician, it's the same thing. It's fairly random how things develop. Word of mouth and exhibitions help. You know. Yeah. Yes, I'd like to have as wide an audience as possible, obviously. I mean, naturally here it's a natural home because the Tonkses are here, so it's a really great privilege to have the work sitting in the same room as him. Um, but some of the drawings, not all the drawings are here, some of them are touring around the Northwest in a, in a bigger group show about um, remembering World War I. Um, and then uh, some other drawings have been at uh, RAF Cosford. Um, and then... Next year, they're going to be in a more um, general, you know, just a gallery and art museum and art centre. So they are travelling around a bit, and that's pretty much what I'd like. You know, we're very keen that a whole cross-section of society see these drawings and see the recovery process and the training process. So, yeah, it's very important that it's, it's a broad, hopefully is seen by a 
as many people as possible. Mm. Anybody else? Have we worn them out, I think, do you think? <laughs> Sorry, just in time, as the clock strikes two. Yeah, perfect um, timing, yeah. Thank you very much, Julia, for your Pleasure. talk today. Um, and um, I do encourage you both to look at the archive material that is still out on display at the back of the room. And don't miss the exhibition as well, where you can see uh, Julia's work. Um, thank you for coming today. We've got one more event coming up in the series to support war art and surgery this year, which is going to be our Hunter to Hellman conference on the 14th and 15th of November with some very um, eminent speakers. So tickets are selling quite quickly. I would encourage you to book up now if you're interested. Um, and we also have another lunchtime talk on the 4th of November, again with the speech-to-text transcription. So we hope that you'll join us for that as well. If you want any more details, I can give you a, a programme. Um, just ask. Thank you very much. <laughs>